welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Simon. No, you're not. You're Brenna, but you're back, baby. (laughs) I am. I am. And our show is located on the ancestral lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops-Tay territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequepamulu. And today's text is, gosh, it's Lord of the Flies, Joe. And so Mm -hmm. I don't have a territorial acknowledgement because it is taking place on an uninhabited island somewhere but right. don't worry folks we're definitely going to talk about colonialism <laughs> i was going to say <laughs> but maybe before we get into it brenna um do you want to give a bit of a status update because obviously yeah. you took some time off to deal with some family stuff yeah i did so thanks so much to all the guest hosts who stepped up to keep the show running i'm super grateful and it was really it was nice to listen to the show in my absence Yeah, so if you follow me on social media, you won't be surprised to know this information, but my my dad passed away Mm -hmm. uh, in mid-October. Suddenly, my dad had been uh, unwell, but we weren't expecting that. Right. And um, yeah, I don't know, Joe, it's... uh, It It sucks. sucks. (laughs) I'm not a fan of this experience. I've been really lucky, like, I was off work... You know, I was checking in on occasion, but I was pretty much checked out of work for about a month. And mm-hmm. I've had a, a a generous and slow return. Um, yeah, this isn't – this is – I think I said to you in a text, this is like a zero out of ten Yelp review situation. Mm-hmm. No redeeming qualities whatsoever. And so I think it's probably going to change some of my readings. I think going through like a big yeah. grief when you make a YA show that mm-hmm. deals a lot with dead parents <laughs> – Let's just say that I I moved uh, a monster calls off of the schedule. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, it's going to impact me forever, probably. Mm -hmm. Um, I was really close with my dad. And, uh, you know, he listened to our show and he always uh, didn't always agree with my readings, but was always sort of an engaged participant in, in this part of my life. I was saying to Joe the other day that like, I would love to feel like I could kind of hide in podcasting or hide in my work and sort of, but my dad was really like, my dad read everything I wrote and he was really sort of interested in kind of the way I do public scholarship and stuff. So it's nice because I feel him close all the time, but it's also, Mm -hmm. not really anywhere to bury my head at the moment. So yeah. Just getting through reading like self-help books for the first time in my life. Got a bunch of Ooh, books of grief here. Okay. And yeah, I don't know. It's uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the trickiest thing with grief is, as you said, it's going to be with you forever, but also there's no right or wrong way to do yeah. it, right? Like you just have to be kind to yourself, take the time when you need it. I feel like I've been working with a lot of folks who are going through similar issues. It feels like uh, we're at that stage in Mm -hmm. our life where we know people who are unexpectedly passing. And I just don't know that anything really prepares us for this, right? Like until you're going through it, you don't even know what to expect. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm a human being with emotions and I'm falling (laughs) apart. Yeah. And it hits you out of nowhere, you know, and um, there's moments where you feel fine and then all of a sudden you're not fine. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's it's trying to find that patience with yourself, I think, even beyond gentleness. Gentleness is good. Self-care is good. Those things are important. Mm-hmm. But for me, the hard part is patience. Like, right. my thinking is slow. <laughs> my working is slow, Joe. I've never read a book as slowly as I read Lord of the Flies. And I don't <laughs> think it's the book. I think it's me. So, you know, it's it's finding, yeah, finding a way to live alongside the grief and not not pretend it's not there. So anyway, I, yes. I we've had lots of folks who listen to the show have reached out when they saw my posts on Twitter. And um, I'm just really grateful people have been so, so kind. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, for keeping the ship afloat while I was off again, Joe, I, uh, I'm grateful. Yeah, no, I mean, 
I don't enjoy doing the show without you. I was very lucky to have folks like Jenny and Justin and Alex to help step in. Yeah, no, I'm not happy that you had to go through this, but I am very happy that you're back. Yeah, me too. So we'll carry on through the holidays, I think, Joe. And then mm-hmm. I'm going to go uh, back and spend a few more weeks with my mom just right after Christmas. So we'll take a couple of weeks off at the beginning of the new year. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think uh, it's nice to be back. It's nice to have this routine back in my life for sure. There we go. Yeah. And of course, this is an interactive episode because it's our sort of monthly banned book entry so we solicited people's responses to lord of the flies and of course we will be doing more of these in the future but this is our last one for the year just to accommodate that break that you're going to take at the holidays so um yeah what a place to end it because joe okay Mm. so you have never read this book Yeah, first time. So I gathered from people's responses that it's pretty unusual for folks to have not read this in middle school or high school. But yeah, um, growing up in Alberta, at least this was not standard fare. So I knew a ton of things about Lord of the Flies, but I had never actually read it. Okay, so I'm really interested to hear your response because yeah, this is this is like one of the cap- capital B books, right? Mm-hmm. It's like one of the books that most people have read or at least they know the gist. They know what it's basically about. Right. And I was the latter. So I definitely was like, "Oh, I feel like I already know everything that's going to happen just because it's so soaked into the cultural consciousness." You're like me when I finally saw um Citizen Kane for the first time. Right. I was like, mm-hmm. I already oh, know I'm everything that's in this references. dumb movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so just so folks have a kind of context, Lord of the Flies was published in 1954. Mm-hmm. It's by William Golding. He's a Nobel Prize winner, not for this book, but like his place in sort of the English canon in particular is mm-hmm. basically unquestioned. Um, I gathered, yeah. This is a very popular book in addition to being you know, one that finds its way onto a lot of school curriculum. I read it, I think, in grade 10. I think we did yes. Catcher in the Rye in grade 9 and Lord of the Flies in grade 10, which no, I feel inappropriate. like... Wrong order. <laughs> I also feel like it tells you a lot about what my high school teachers thought about teenagers anyway, that this is what we wanted to read. Um mm-hmm. So they they did a poll in 2016, the most popular books in all of England. This came third. Um, it's you know, regularly named as one of the best 100 books of all time, often one of the best 25 books of all time. So like, we see this book appear a lot. And I have Mm -hmm. to know, Joe, finally encountering it, finally reading it, finally learning about Piggy. (laughs) What did you think? Um, People are probably going to think that I'm just a total a-hole. But honestly, I found it a little boring. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... I think part of it is that it it feels very repetitive. I was complaining about this to Brian that, well, I think Golding has really great prose in certain sections of the book. I find especially his dialogue to be incredibly repetitive and kind of rote and simplistic. And I think that it's probably in part because I already know so much of what's going to happen because I've seen variations of this across like, countless other tv shows movies other books and so on but also because i mean obviously we're dealing with younger boys so they're not going to be incredibly well developed but this is also a classic book as we've said so a lot of it just feels it's that hurdle for me where i'm trying to get into a different kind of writing style because this does feel so kind of classic like capital c classic writing where i'm just like oh we don't write books like this anymore (laughs) I think it's a fair point. I also want to tell you that Miss Perkins, who was the in-house reader at Faber and Faber when this book was first submitted, she mm-hmm. rejected it. She said it was rubbish and dull and pointless. <laughs> so you and Miss Perkins could hang. There we go. <laughs> Look me up, you probably geriatric woman. Um, oh, she's almost certainly dead. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh I also feel like this book is incredibly masculine. And, you know, when you said we read Catcher in the Rye and then we read this, I thought, wow, okay, that does (laughs) tell us a lot about 
how we define classic literature, what we have decided were the most important things. I would like to think that we have moved away from that kind of approach. But yeah, this feels very important. I feel like we're just going to keep saying like things with capital letters. Like this is very capital I important literature where Golding is trying to say something about the human condition, civilization, the British Empire, and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And I was like, yeah, I get all of that. It's also very surface level for me. Like, mm. this feels like it was designed to be read by children to teach them a <laughs> lesson. Yeah, it does feel super didactic. I agree with you there. And I found that on this reread for me, it was – we've talked about this before, that since becoming – the mother, I think, particularly the mother of a boy, particularly mm -hmm. the mother of a boy who kind of goes his own way when it comes to how he presents himself to the world. Sure. I uh, bullying upsets me a lot, and I mm -hmm. felt like I was just read this book on tenderhooks this time around. Just wait, right. and maybe that's why I moved through it so slowly because I knew mm -hmm. I didn't have the bandwidth. But I was just waiting for something horrific to happen. Obviously, horrific things do happen, mm -hmm. um, but almost not to the degree that my brain was prepared for. I yeah. I think we've I think maybe some of the texts we have read has broken my brain a little bit as possible. Mm -hmm. And I was just waiting for like something truly horrific to happen. Well it's interesting that you say that because one of the things that I was thinking of was like, how have we seen this book inform successive works? Like mm. I immediately went to your thoughts on the Maze Runner because that's yeah. basically what the maze runner is only with the introduction of a single female and you know i think in a lot of ways this book has done a great job of informing how we talk about society as a monolith how we create leadership and different social hierarchical structures and so on but yeah it's like it also has a very cynical, almost nihilistic point of view mm. about what boys in particular will do to one another, to the same extent that I honestly spent a lot of the book being like, well, when are they just going to start murdering each other? I knew at least one kid would be murdered, but I thought a bunch of them were going to be murdered. Yeah, I um, I I definitely recommend folks who are familiar with this story, look up... Uh... A situation that happened in 1965 when a group of real-life schoolboys were shipwrecked for 15 months on mm -hmm. a deserted island. And um, nothing like this happens. Mm -hmm. They they actually kind of get on with something akin to a society. And so I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by the view – well – Okay, I think we should situate this in its post-war context, but I also think we should probably give a plot summary. So let me do that. Yes. Okay. And then I'll talk about why I think any book published in 1954 would take this dim view of humanity. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, the basic premise here is that boys are being uh, evacuated from England during the war. Now, mm -hmm. that happened in real life in the sure. Second World War. But lots of critics read this as actually more like a World War III kind of scenario, because there mm. seems to be some allusion to nuclear weapons having been used to shoot these boys down. So right. we have these boys, they've been evacuated, and their plane crashes on an isolated island. We think they're in the Pacific, there's some allusion to that, but we really are not geographically sort of mm -mm. oriented in any way. No. The boys who survive are all either sort of middle childhood pre-adolescence. We're talking like 8 to 12. A good marker for this, by the way, Joe, is that mm -hmm. aristocratic boys stop wearing the short pants when they turn 8. And a lot of these boys mm. are in short pants. So right. we know that we're in kind of this, this period in time. The first two boys we meet are Ralph and Piggy. We're going to talk a lot about Piggy, I suspect, oh, but I'm going to elide that part right now. And mm -hmm. they find a conch shell, which they use as a horn to gather all the survivors together. And this one simple act effectively makes Ralph the leader. Mm -hmm. And Piggy the intellectual. Yes. Well, he has glasses, Joe. So, <laughs> As we know from YA tales, if you have glasses and also a ponytail, you may be a nerd in need of a makeover. And or you're the fat intellectual who's going to be killed. <laughs> if only, if only we could have a she's all that for Piggy. There is, right. there is no such narrative. No. 
so we we have this group of boys and they basically set about well ralph sets about a few goals uh he wants the boys to have fun he wants them to scavenge for food and see what's available on the island he wants to explore the island to make sure they know their surroundings and he wants to maintain a smoke signal this is important (laughs) it is his downfall (laughs) it is ralph's number one goal and also his downfall is that he he recognizes that the only way they're going to be rescued is if a passing ship notices that there seem to be people living on this island. And mm-hmm. so it, he becomes obsessed with maintaining uh, a smoke signal. But there's a problem, Brenna. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a problem because his name is Jack. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> so Jack, Jack. Jack doesn't want to maintain a smoke signal and explore the island. Jack wants to hunt pigs and mm-hmm. live... First, he wants to live with lots of rules because, you know, that is the British way, British, he notes, yeah. which makes Love me it. laugh so hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but slowly what he realizes is he wants to make rules, not live sure. by them himself and kill things. That's basically mm-hmm. what Jack wants to do. Yeah, because he's a quintessential boy, right? He wants yes. to be in power and he wants to kill things. <laughs> And so obviously this is sort of the fracture on the island. There are the boys primarily from the choir who go along with Jack, and there are the other boys who go along with Ralph. And then caught in between them are a lot of really little kids who are mm-hmm. just like scared and confused yeah. and, and will go with anybody who can feed them, basically. Sure. So eventually they think they find a monster. It's really a fighter pilot who has ejected from a plane and died. Mm-hmm. And so through a series of misunderstandings, uh, one of the boys, Simon, who has been sort of the quiet, keeps to himself, he's very queer coded, which I suspect mm-hmm. we will also talk about. Yep. Um, he is mistaken for the beast, the monster, no. and he, mistaken <laughs> in quotation sort marks. Of. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he is killed in a weird frenzy that is certainly mm. initiated by Jack, but which Piggy and Ralph also participate in. Which yep. Ralph has a much harder time coming to terms with than Piggy. Piggy feels like he can just kind of put it out of his head. Mm-hmm. There's another altercation between Jack's boys and Ralph's boys when they steal Piggy's glasses so that they can start their own fire and cook some meat, which ultimately culminates in Ralph and Piggy and his team trying to exact revenge, I guess. Piggy is killed by Roger dropping a massive boulder on his head. Mm-hmm. And. Ralph ends up running for his life right into the arms of a British naval officer who mm-hmm. rescues, quote unquote, him. And that right. is the end of the book, which ends with yeah. all the boys crying on the island. The end. Sure. As you yeah. would, right? Oh, my God. Can you? The <laughs> fact that they're not crying from minute one. <laughs> yeah. When I was reading about the reactions of the the little ones where they're they're kind of like, playing and having fun and eating as much as they can and then just crying and having nightmares. It's like, yeah, relatable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's also been my pandemic experience, incidentally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. So um, contextually, Joe, we've got this book set in 1954 and Golding as a figure, he straddles the modernist and the postmodernist eras. So mm-hmm. you can see the modernism in, I think, a lot of the things that you're picking out as feeling kind of like classical in the right. expression. Um, a fairly sparse use of language and the repetition feels very modernist to me. But one of the sort of traits of postmodern literature, especially kind of the immediate post-war stuff, is this just real sense that humanity is horrible and mm-hmm. does horrible things to each other. And, you know, In 1954, people were still uncovering the realities of the Holocaust, let alone coming to terms with them. Right. The idea that people left to their own devices are not inherently good really permeates a lot of immediate post-war literature. And I think that's what we're seeing here, for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it should be noted – So part of the reason we're covering this book is because it has been criticized. It was number 68 on the American Library Association's list of 100 most frequently challenged books in 1990 to 1999. And I mean, the main reason it gets banned is because it has like this cynical, selfish view of humanity. And I think that that's interesting because I feel like that's the reason that people also simultaneously celebrate it. Like it feels as though... 
it's daring to say something negative about humanity and civilization. Well, one thing I find really interesting is sort of the shift in reasons why this book has been challenged and banned over time. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the early 80s, the 70s, we see we see phrases in the documentation around challenges like this book is demoralizing and as much mm -hmm. as it implies that man is little more than an animal or you know this book has excessive violence and bad language <clears throat> but what we see in more modern times is a transition in by the late 80s um this book was recommended to be removed from reading lists in your city of Toronto Joe mm. because members of the black community really did not like the way sort of well, first of all, there's some hard R's right at the end of the book, but also Ooh, this notion yeah. that like, the notion that these boys have somehow kind of like devolved into being like yes. island people and that that is, it, that it's ultimately deeply denigrates mm -hmm. non-British cultures. Um, yes. Yeah. We'll, I think, address that a bit more when we get to the film in particular. Yeah, we definitely will. And then there there's been a lot of challenges around the way disability is represented, particularly in the character of Piggy, the way mm -hmm. well, the way minorities in general are sort of depicted in the book. But there was also a ban in Iowa in the 90s, Joe, um, because the book had lurid passages about sex. What? What book? I, I know no, I ask this every time we go through <laughs> challenges, but what book are these people reading? I mean, here's the thing. You you said that Simon has queer coding elements, and obviously there's homosocial commentary. Like, there's a lot of references to the boys looking at each other's bodies, and it's like, oh, he's not wearing shorts anymore. He seems comfortable with just the war paint. Like, Jack, I think at one point, literally shows up naked, and he's only wearing war paint. So there there is the sexualization of the bodies but i wouldn't actually say it's sexual like in a way it's more commentary about the power play going on between the various groups and you know simon's queer coding is in is in sort of looks and gestures there's a moment where he leaves a hand on ralph for yes. just a moment too long that makes mm -hmm. ralph uncomfortable and these these little moments force simon into the role of the outsider which is eventually yes. what leads to his demise but yeah mm -hmm. i was as always, Iowa, I just think get real. <laughs> these committees reading these books, I just, I, we, well, I just want to talk for things, right? Yeah, I just want to. I just <laughs> want to have a conversation because I don't understand. Also, you're stupid. <laughs> <sighs> Shall we talk about Peggy? <laughs> we should, yeah, because. This does not play well in 2022. Let oh me just say that. God. I feel like everybody knows it going in, but holy F, Brenna, the fat phobia is off the chain. The fat phobia and the ableism, right? So from minute mm -hmm. one, it's the fact that he is fat, that he is wearing glasses, and that he has mm -hmm. asthma. And that Asmar. marks him oh. Asmar. That marks him as useless in the mind of yeah. the other boys, even though he's the only one who maintains a clear-eyed perspective. Mm -hmm. for the majority of the text. So I'm I'm curious though because Trace and I have these conversations a lot about intent, right? I oh, think yeah. we can see from Golding's perspective, he knows that Piggy is an intelligent boy and he's someone that the other should be listening to. So it's not that the book is necessarily fat phobic and ableist. It's that mm. the commentary within the characters, you're disagreeing with me. Okay. I'm I'm only disagreeing with you insofar as William Golding is the one making the choice to never tell us Piggy's actual name, right? So That is fair. Yes. At the okay. beginning of the book, Ralph says, my name is Ralph. And Piggy says, I just hope nobody calls me what they called me at school. And mm -hmm. Ralph says, what did they call you at school? And he says, Piggy. And that's right. it. Like, yeah. that doesn't have to be how that conversation went down at all. Mm -hmm. And even if everyone calls him Piggy... Golden could have given us his real right. name, right? Why why does he choose not to do that? I think I think Golden too has disdain for this character, even though mm -hmm. obviously he he kind of is the moral center, such as there is one of the book. Well, I hmm, this is interesting because now I'm just inferring things based on my interpretation of how I read it, but it mm. very much felt like Golden considers himself to be a kind of amalgamation like his proxies in this book is a combination of the intellect of piggy and the leadership slash 
white savior, white male savior of Ralph. Mm -hmm. I don't disagree with that. I think that that's why they're always together and why ultimately Mm -hmm. Ralph can't survive once Piggy is killed, right? Because there is no, there is, there is no leadership without the two of them together. Ralph is quite frankly, not smart enough, right? Like Ralph- He's a figurehead. And he can't even keep in his head his own goal of the smoke, right? Like Piggy has Uh, to keep saying to him, smoke, smoke, (laughs) Sure. I mean, I also read that as exhaustion slash starvation, (laughs) because at this point, they've only been eating berries for (laughs) however many weeks they've been on the island. But yes, I also agree. Yeah. So I think that's a piece. I want to talk a bit about the white saviorism in Ralph's character. I Because I don't disagree with you. And I think in particular, when we transition to the film, we'll we'll talk about this in a different way. But I want to... I decided this morning (laughs) that there's more of a critique of colonialism here than I had previously recognized. And I say that because Jack is the character at the beginning of the book that says, we're British and the British are best at everything. And that's why we'll be fine, right? Sure. (laughs) Jack is also the first one to lose it completely. And so it's this, there's, I think through a lot of the literature of England, (laughs) there's this sense that Britishness is innate, right? That your Englishness is something that you take with you abroad and you spread out to the world. That's not what happens here, right? Because as soon as Jack is not being controlled by adults, effectively, all those trappings of Britishness fall Mm -hmm. away immediately. So it's, (laughs) I'm not going to make the point that like, this is like an anti-colonial or post-colonial book, because I don't think it is. And I think all the discourse around savages, etc. is like, we will unpack it, it's problematic. But Mm -hmm. there is also something here about the assumptions of what Britishness is and how it protects us Mm -hmm. and how it fails. Because the first thing that the naval officer says to Ralph is, I would have thought a group of British boys would have gotten on a bit better than this. Yeah, well, they Mm -hmm. didn't, homie. Like, (laughs) they really didn't. Yes. See what what the UK did to Africa. (laughs) Yes, yes. I don't think Golding takes it as far as he could and should. And I definitely think that the way the descent, quote unquote, into quote unquote savageness is portrayed is gross and super, super colonial. Mm -hmm. But I do think there's a level at which Golding is questioning whether that Britishness is sort of like innate to the self, the way somebody like Richard Kipling would have argued, Mm. versus like, it's actually the structure of the British state, right? It's the rule of law that that Golding is actually upholding here. And it's the failure of the rule of law that destroys the boys, Mm. ultimately. That's interesting. So so we ended up having two listeners write in, Natalie and Miriam, and I feel like you're touching on something that Natalie kind of broaches but doesn't necessarily go into a great amount of detail on. Yeah. I think people ultimately struggled with this one. I thought we were going to get a few more responses, and I think a lot of people were just like, I read it once and I don't really want to revisit it. <laughs> Fair, fair, fair (laughs) listeners. That's totally fair. (laughs) But Natalie does mention at one point, I get the sense that the abstract ideas of adulthood and masculinity that the boys have been exposed to in their lives before the crash is seeping into their lives on the island like a foggy haze. And I think you've kind of done that writ large to the kind of basically British empire, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I think so. I think, you know, in that email, Natalie says, like, I found it hard to relate to the brutality and ruthlessness, which, like, sure. I yes. Yes. strong agree. <laughs> well, I think also we don't want to see ourselves in that. So Mm-mm. to a certain extent, I, I found myself, like, rebuffing a lot of this where I don't want to be like these boys. So I find it difficult to empathize and relate to them, except for possibly Piggy and maybe Simon. Yes. Yeah, I I agree with that, too. I think that you know, in a lot of ways, this is a book about how certain ideals of masculinity fail when tested. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack starts out by perceiving himself as this provider figure who can train the hunters and and supply everyone with food. Mm-hmm. When he isn't sufficiently lauded and celebrated for those efforts, that's really right. when things start to go downhill, right? When mm-hmm. he is seen as someone who has a role and not the person leading, he he can't cope with that. There's a toxicity to Jack's masculinity that ultimately is what causes him to unravel to the extent that he does. So yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that they start out trying to play at the roles of adulthood that they've seen their whole lives, and 
when they don't work, they don't know what to do. Yeah, because I think at one point, Ralph mentions that his father is in the Navy. Yes. And, you know, he he's clearly using that to try to advocate for why they need to have a fire, right? Yeah. And you can tell that Jack is play acting as some kind of like, okay, if I don't have a role, if I'm not a provider, aka probably what his father used to instill in him... Like, if you don't have that role as the provider, then what good are you? Or you need to carve it back out. And I I love, there's a great moment in the book that I think is actually better played in the film when Jack ultimately breaks away. So he tries to make a, a grab for leadership and mm. no one supports him. And so he just decides, I'm going to leave. And if people want to come and join me later, they can. And he cries as he walks away but it's something that's only privy to us as the audience and no one acknowledges that vulnerability so he just sheds it and he becomes a killer instead yeah i i think i realized in this reread of the book that what i miss in this book that i think i would expect in a contemporary version mm -hmm. is i want to know more about where these boys have come from and i oh understand that for yeah. some people that's a strength here is that this is mm -hmm. like this this it's like a social experiment race right? kind of social experiment yeah but i mean it's, you can't tell me jack didn't get beaten like the fact Ooh. that jack's first response to any kind of he lashes out he lashes out and he abuses the boys who follow him. He abuses the boys who see him as a leader, like the ones who are on his side. He's mm -hmm. horrible to them. And I just, I wanted so badly, I, I think because I wanted so badly to find a way in to caring about the characters more, mm -hmm. I wanted that backstory. Like I wanted to understand because part of what works about Piggy is you know about his kind of crappy home life, right? right. Like he's being raised by his aunt. He's mistreated by his family. He's bullied mm -hmm. at school. And all of those things allow us to care about Piggy yes. and want a better outcome for him. And I wanted that same complexity for Jack. Yeah, it's so interesting that you say that because I do, I can't help but wonder if that's a contemporary response because totally. it's, it's also something that Miriam raised in her email. So she says, it feels superficial in its character descriptions. I think I expected more from it. I wanted more Simon. I wanted to know more about the thoughts and feelings of the boys. If I read a book, I want to get to know the characters. And because that doesn't really happen, I just don't care that much. Yeah, I think that's a really good, <laughs> that's a really mm -hmm. good synopsis. I, and I do think it probably is an expectation of modern readers, right? Because I think, you know, we've had like this sort of psychological revolution in culture and in literature, we expect a certain amount of like mm -hmm. understanding of the backstory, we expect a certain amount of psychological depth, and we don't, we don't get yeah. that here. And no. it feels absent. It does. It feels like we're watching a bunch of archetypes as opposed to mm. actual characters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which, again, I don't know that it's a problem, but I think that it's a hurdle for particularly contemporary audiences because you're right. We just, we've come to expect it. And when it's not here, it's like, okay, well, this feels shallow. Yeah, agreed. Do you want to transition over and we can talk about the film? Yeah, not really, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> the brilliant, exciting motion picture. Lord of the Flies. Piggy. Huh? That was murder. You stop it. What good are you doing talking like that? It was dark. There was that bloody dance. There was thunder and lightning and rain. We were scared. It wasn't what you said. Oh, Piggy! The artful, chilling story of castaways degenerating into savagery. Lord of the Flies. Okay, so the film is from 1963, and it was written and directed by Peter Brooks, so we're still hanging out on the British front. And it's interesting because, well, the film, I mean, it was also adopted a second time in 1990. I was going to try to watch that, and then I just kind of ran out of time because it's actually not super easy to track down. Like, I didn't want to have to pay for it. I was hoping for a streamer. Mm -hmm. But um, 
What's interesting about the film is that they shot it in 1961, but it doesn't come out until almost two to three years later. So it was shot in Puerto Rico. So the island that they're on is authentic. And many of these children are first time amateur actors. So like, basically, I think they did a casting call of like, hey, you know, Lord of the Flies, it's a British classic. Do you want your children to be in the movie adaptation? And all of these parents were like, yeah, my kid's not doing anything for summer break. So ship them off to an island in Puerto Rico (laughs) and basically let them go wild. So it's kind of like cinema verite in a lot of ways. Like you're getting very naturalistic performances from child actors, many of whom never go on to act in anything else. So there is that kind of ring of authenticity and also not always great line delivery. Like I particularly think the boy who plays Piggy is a genuinely bad actor and that hurts the film because Piggy is meant to be the most empathetic character apart from Simon. (laughs) Yeah, it's sort of, it's an interesting process that the film went through. And I don't think it was the right process for making a film with children. So like, No, we would never do it this way now. Never. Okay, so Peter Brook shot 60 hours of film. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then he edited it down to a four hour film, which mm-hmm. honestly, Joe, if I had to watch, I would have. No, absolutely no. not. And then that got edited down to the 100 minute film that was actually released. Um mm-hmm. And part of the issue is it was in production for so long, right? So by the time he had narrowed it down to that 100 minutes, he had Mm -hmm. to do all these additional like audio cuts and stuff. But your children are now teenagers and they're boys. Their voices Mm -hmm. have changed. So it's like, did you remember you were working with small children? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, folks. We didn't get any responses from either Natalie or Miriam about the film. It seemed like they waited through the book on our behalf, and then they were like, I didn't do the movie. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. So this is interesting because this is a Criterion film. It's incredibly well regarded. So people honestly look at the film in the same way that they look at the book. It's considered a classic. But you're right. It had a huge issue, particularly with Ralph's voiceover. So... They had to scrap a lot of his dialogue and they did it as ADR, which means they did it in post. But Ralph's voice, as you said, had changed. So they had to get a different person to do the voice work. And the distinction between part of Ralph's dialogue and then these voiceovers is immense. You can totally tell the difference. They don't sound anything alike to the point where you wish they had just redubbed his entire voice, the entire film, because that would have been less jarring and distracting. Well, yeah, and the weirdest part for me was there's no matching of the background sound to the Mm -hmm. audio, which I guess would be easier to do now maybe than it was in 63. So you end up with like, it sounds like studio quality sound Mm -hmm. when Ralph is talking and then it goes back to sort of like the messy, overspoken, like crowd dialogue of the boys. Mm-hmm. It's it's really distracting. It's really distracting. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate because it's not like this is a minor character who only has a couple of lines. It's like there's huge chunks of this film where you're just taken out of this world because all you can do is focus on how the voice doesn't sound natural. Yeah. And I'm also fascinated by Peter Brook and his process, like Apparently in 1996, he had like a reunion for all the actors. Mm-hmm. And the reason why he had the reunion is because while well, he was making another movie, he made a documentary about them. But right. he was, he was, this is a direct quote from Brooke. I was curious to know what the years had done to the cast and what effect isolated months of filming it had on their lives. Mm-hmm. Like 30 years later, he thought to ask. <laughs> yeah, it feels almost like the 7-Up series. Yeah. <laughs> so folks if you don't know uh the seven up series was this famous so kind of again social experiment that they did in the uk where they just followed people every seven years throughout their lives and i think there's like seven or eight entries so like i think you start at seven and then 14 21 so you're touching base with these people to chronicle their lives and it's fascinating but yeah it's also basically you know the equivalent to Peter Brook getting everybody back together to say, so how much did I traumatize you now that you've had 30 years to think about it? And one of them, I think the actor who plays Simon, Tom Damon, 
said, yeah, you know, at the time it felt fine because we were shooting this movie and we were all doing the thing. And then in hindsight, I realized, oh, it was really traumatizing having to undergo that experience. And I can't even imagine what it was like because for me, the film is most successful in two sequences. And one of them is Simon's murder, which is like a surreal fever dream. Can I read the quote from him? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, he says, We were excited, brandishing flaming sticks around a bonfire on a beach in a real storm. I really did emerge from the bushes into the center of a raging crowd. I screamed in terror, was stabbed by boys with sharpened sticks, and staggered to the water. Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because none of the parents were actually on set, right? Like, Peter Brook took these children away from their family (laughs) for a couple of months, filmed this movie, and then dropped them back off and was like, hey, by the way, I fake murdered a kid. He's traumatized. (laughs) It's just simply wild. And also, you know, when you think about this happening in 1961, these kids aren't going to have the vocabulary to describe what they've been through, but their parents aren't going to either. Mm -hmm. And so... I mean, the parents are probably just excited because their kid is a movie star. Yeah, exactly. Like, glad you made art, Peter Brook, but jeepers, creepers. It's horrifying. But I will say, like, that sequence, it's I good. didn't love the movie in particular because no. it felt like a lot of Lord of the Flies in a short period of time. Like, I was mainlining this to try to get it all done in time because I didn't gauge how long it would take me to read the book. So I mm-hmm. read the book literally finished it and then watched the movie immediately after so that we could record today (laughs) yes same and um it was a lot like i actually think the film is a reasonably good adaptation i think it narrows some of the emotional scope of the book which seems weird because we just complained that there isn't a ton in the book but this feels quite streamlined like it it almost feels more plot based as opposed to providing us even any interiority like i didn't feel like sam and eric the twins were really characters didn't really feel like simon got that much to do so it Mm -hmm. was really the the piggy ralph and jack show yes agreed but i will say the other sequence i i quite enjoyed question mark was piggy's death and just how traumatizing that is like when i posted i was watching this i definitely got a couple of people say oh i watched that movie too young and it messed me up and i do think simon's death and piggy's death are captured in such a horrifying fashion like the editing in particular it's really kind of staccato you're trying to figure out what's happening with simon's death it's just really overwhelming and then piggy the way it's shot and edited you actually fool yourself into thinking you see a boulder full on collapse a child's head and then he's like being washed away. (laughs) So, And I don't know how many people had this experience, but I definitely watched this movie in an English classroom. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I can see it. And I don't remember anything about the film. Like I didn't even have glimpses (laughs) of memories. No, all I remember is that feeling of we watched it at the end of the day and the buses were coming to pick us up and it was that feeling of like the lights getting flicked back on and the movie getting turned off no Mm -hmm. analysis no discussion no no unpacking no discourse i just remember that like Mm. blinking into the bright light like the bright fluorescent lights getting turned on and being like i've just come out of something what just happened (laughs) (laughs) like i thought i would i thought when i watched it like shots would come back to me you know as often happens when it's been a Mm -hmm. long time since you've seen a film no nothing my brain retained zero (laughs) of this movie just like Mm. it's just a file not found (laughs) that's fascinating yeah i will say i think one of the things that the film has to its advantage so even though it was shot in 61 released in 63 or 64 depending on where you were in the world uh it was a conscious decision to shoot it in black and white like they Mm. would have had color at this point okay so i thought it was really interesting And it's one of the reasons I really wanted to check out the 1990 film, which is apparently not good and not a classic. But I wanted to see how the black and white changes the way that you engage with it. Because in a a way, this is obviously monochrome, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's various shades of gray, which kind of lends itself thematically to what we're experiencing, right? Mm -hmm. I think it also maybe allied some of the issues with race that we should probably talk about yeah. because the book is filled with 
discussions about like how they paint themselves and it's very much like indigenous or like island appropriation but also we talk about like the boys that get burnt versus the boys that tan or like how they just tan Mm -hmm. to such an extreme color they're almost no longer british and i'm using air quotes Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, but you can't see that in black and white as well so it kind of almost removes itself from those icky racial connotations but i'm imagining the color film would have to address that Oh, that's a really good point. I I found the body painting scenes in the film really unsettling. Mm-hmm. And and partly it's because it makes explicit what is the underlying tone of the book, which is this idea that, you know, yeah. as we paint ourselves, we cover up our Britishness, we cover up our civility, and mm-hmm. it becomes easy to do horrifying things once we yes. cover up that veneer. Um well, and I think even like let's let's lay it on the table. I think this is the when you do this, you become a savage. You yeah, absolutely. Less civilized and so on, which I think is it's one of those things where I think we acknowledge in 1963 this was probably a totally fine, totally mm. maybe even popular opinion. And nowadays we look at this and we're just like, oh God, yeah. no. And the ways in which the boys play at islandness, or in the parlance mm-hmm. of the book, they play at savagery in the parlance of the book. So yes. not just painting themselves, but they they make this sort of, sort of like ulu, I don't know how to say that word ululation. Ulu, anyway, they make they make this chant when they're mm-hmm. running around that is you know supposed to sound like they are indigenous, and it's this yeah. idea of like performance. But it's also a performance that completely removes any sort of responsibility to each Mm -hmm. other, um, which is what makes it so horrifying, right? Because it's like this impression that this is what people outside of the confines of British law and order do. Mm -hmm. It's obviously obviously wrong and it's obviously problematic and it's obviously gross, but but it is clearly all wrapped up in this notion of like what even is empire and it's mm-hmm. so fascinating to me that i think golding is able to ask the beginnings of questions about that without yes. ever getting near the idea that that those assumptions are wrong right like mm-hmm. he's willing to question whether sort of Britishness is this innate good that protects, but he's not willing to question sort of the notion of the British state. Um, And in many ways, I think the film is even less interested in a question, and it's more interested in kind of the visual spectacle of the body paint. Uh Yeah, yeah, I fully agree with that to the point where I think one of the reasons that the book has become, maybe this is me not being generous enough or me sort of belittling what Golding has accomplished. But I feel like part of the reason that the book has become a classic and it is so celebrated is just how impactful that ending is, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's all about this loss of innocence that these boys ultimately have to discover when they finally are rescued by a freaking British Navy man. Oh, oh, and like how, oh, the failure of empathy on the part of the naval officer, right? Oh, like, God. yeah. These boys have been abandoned <laughs> for how long? They're too, he, uh, Ralph the has already told this guy <laughs> that two people are dead, right? Mm-hmm. And the, and and what what horrifies him the most? Not mm-hmm. that two boys are dead, which by the way, three boys are dead. We've already forgotten about the child who died in the fire at this point. But oh, sure. um, mm-hmm. what horrifies the naval officer is not that children have been killed. What horrifies the naval officer is emotion like that they're crying yeah. and he he looks off to see while they while he gives them time to gather themselves he says and it's like oh <laughs> wow yeah just give them a minute and they'll get over the intense trauma of the murders they've committed like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah but the, i feel like the film almost leans into it even more right like it it is in some ways i think a bit of a condemnation of how we as a society mistreat boys or expect them to behave according to like social conventions of polite society and very Britishness and all that kind of stuff. Mm. But then, especially in the film, that final image, right? It's almost a point of view shot from Ralph's perspective. And the camera just tilts up as we see this pristine, (gasps) you know, perfectly pressed white outfit to this kind of uncaring (laughs) masculine face. Yes. Just like, oh, 
okay you know like it really just reconfirms like this is the ideal it's the stern father who has come to shake these boys back into civilized society this boy needs a social worker and a hug and instead he gets to this guy (laughs) Right, exactly. This is one moment where the black and white works so well, though, because that crisp white uniform against oh, the out ocean so is much. stunning. Yeah. Especially because at this point, the whole island is basically on fire. So yes. it's very smoky and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I will say one scene I was very excited to see how Brooke was going to handle, and it ultimately ended up really disappointing me, was the actual Lord of the Fly hallucination that simon Mm -hmm. has when Mm -hmm. he's looking at the pig head Mm -hmm. and i appreciate that maybe we didn't want to take it that far because we really wanted to leave the moment for simon's death which i think is more visually what i was expecting but just pushing in on the the maggots and the flies that are eating the pig's head yeah it just had so much potential and i felt really underwhelmed by this creative decision like you could have shot this in so many more interesting ways because i really didn't feel like simon was engaging with that or having that hallucination which you need to believe otherwise you don't understand why he would have stumbled out of the dark into a group of boys with fire and basically spears Well, I think a general problem with the film and Simon's character is that it doesn't really engage with the notion of madness. Like, Simon is being very slowly sort of driven mad Mm -hmm. by the events of the book, right? Like, every every kind of step away from civilization, quote unquote, you know, where a character like Jack relishes and takes pleasure in it, it's Mm -hmm. deeply unsettling and traumatizing for simon and so and really simon begins to unravel after the boy with the birthmark goes missing after the fire right and Mm -hmm. he's sort of simon is the only person who sees clearly that they are all doomed right Right. um (laughs) and, and it's you know and we're the the book often sort of treats this as like, well, this is his sensitive nature. This is which is, you know, part of the queer coding of his character. Mm-hmm. But because the film doesn't really engage in Simon's madness at all. Nope. Everything about that up to the death, which is very effective, is unfortunately, I think, less impactful than it could be. Yeah, I agree. <sighs> I don't know. Overall, I was happy to check this off the list. Like, I Mm -hmm. felt like we, I feel like we had to do it at a certain point. And I was looking forward to it because, of course, I haven't had the experience and I've heard so much about it. Yeah. I think it is hurt in part, as we talked about, because of the contemporary lens through which we read a lot of things. Like, it's just really hard to get back into that mindset of the 60s. But also because I've seen this played out in so many alternative formats. Like, I really spent a lot of my time when I was watching the movie thinking about the Amazon TV show The Wilds, which Mm. is a female take on this. And I'm not spoiling anything by revealing that within the first episode of this two-season TV show... So it's it's girls who crash on an island and then they have to set up a, a new civilization and they hope for rescue and they have a bunch of falling outs and a couple of people do get murdered or killed. But at the end of the first episode, it's actually revealed that they are part of a social experiment. The, mm. the crash was manufactured and they are being observed by people like the whole island is under surveillance and it's literally to determine what will happen with these girls. Like, will they survive? How will they function? And so on. And I think it's just a more, obviously, it's a more contemporary perspective. Like, it's playing on our fascination with Survivor, the game show, you know, which is now in, like, its 30th season. But, like, we actually get to know these girls. We get flashbacks to who they were, why they were chosen to go onto this island, and what the eventual hope and goal of the experiment is. And, sure, it's... It's very different from what Golding is trying to showcase, but it's getting at the same thing in a far more entertaining, but also mm. character-driven perspective. Well, I think it's very interesting, and I think I think this is the modernism in Golding's approach, that we get so little context. So we already talked about, you know, we don't get backstories for these characters, but we also mm-hmm. don't know, like, beyond the fact that they're being evacuated, like... Why are they on this plane? Do they know right. each other? How did it even get shot down? And the one that bothers me is, do they not know any of the dead people on the plane? 
Right? Because yeah, they seem to not know each other at all. No, and there's not any sense of like, yeah, my brother was on the plane and he's not alive, you know? But mm-hmm. one would assume that if they at least – because some of them were in classes together, right? Like we know the choir boys know each other, for example. Yeah, and, and Piggy, I think, knows Jack because he constantly references his last name. Yes, and so I think – again, I think this is – this is modernism speaking and it's sort of sparse and stripped back kind of storytelling. Mm-hmm. But I think that we as sort of post postmodern readers find that really difficult. We're very used to having a lot of backstory as sort of the reason yes. to be compelled. And so without it, yeah, I don't know. Mm. Um, do you want to play some Why Bingo? I do. I really do. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, so the one I've been waiting to say to you, Joe, mm-hmm. is that opening montage in that movie, baby. <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting way to open the film. To be honest, I completely forgot about it until you brought it up. Yeah, it's just still images of like wartime pictures and then like rockets and planes. And then we actually kind of get an interpretation of how the crash might have gone, but it's still just done through still photography. And this thumping drum, this like boom, 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 mm-hmm. boom, 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 which is sort yeah. of, it's sort of islandy, but it's also sort of classical. It's like this uh-huh. weird kind of hybrid. Yeah, I don't know, man. I did not know what to make of it, to be perfectly honest. So I had to raise it because it's on the bingo card. Uh-huh. No, I mean, I'm glad you did because I do think it's one of the more interesting creative decisions. Mm-hmm. We've obviously got some dead bodies, uh-huh. several. As well as the ableism and the abuse. A lot of ableism and a lot of abuse. Um, We're on borrowed time, I think, quite clearly in both book and film. Like, this isn't going to go on forever. They are going to be rescued or they are all going to die. One or the other is going to happen, right? Yeah. I'm going to call it queer secondary character for Simon. I think in Mm -hmm. the context of a book from 1954, you can't not note its presence. Um, I don't know. Do you have anything else? Um, do you want to give stunt casting to Piggy? <laughs> no. <laughs> the only other one that I was maybe considering was the kind of magic supernatural, but I think it's really more about hallucinating. Yeah. Like, this is about characters who are slowly going mad due to exhaustion, dehydration, starvation, probably lack of sleep because they're, you know, they've got these makeshift shelters and mm-hmm. they're getting caught out in the storm and that kind of stuff. But there are certain elements, like Golding's description of what happens to Simon, even as he's just retreating to kind of hide in that hole. And then as much as I didn't enjoy reading the book, I do think that Golding has a couple of parts that are really well written, like the descriptions are both clear and opaque at the same Mm -hmm. time. Like, I couldn't figure out what exactly the beast was until he spelled it out. Mm -hmm. Because until then, I actually thought that it might have been a giant ape. Yeah, yeah. I think he does a very good job of um, trickling out information in very much the same way that the boys are learning. Mm -hmm. Even though we get more than the boys, the boys know even less. But I, I think that that sort of... There, there's an element at which, like, if the monster turned out to be a real monster, it'd be a not half bad horror movie. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. <laughs> I think that's called Lost. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. I did not. You're going to be surprised, Joe, but I did not watch it. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all this to say, this is a very empty bingo card. No line for us. <laughs> Boo, William Golding. Boo, Peter Brook. <laughs> Boo. Take your classics and shove them. all right joe i bet we're gonna get more bingo for our next book club in january so january's book club is going to be all american boys by jason reynolds and brendan kiley joe i've wanted to do this book for a while um it's an attempt to write multiple perspectives on the question of sort of racist police and how Mm. young black bodies are perceived i'm very very excited for this one 
Yeah, I've been excited and also slightly trepidatious about this, but I'm excited that we're finally going to do it. So uh, folks, we're going to ask you if you are reading along with us, we would love to hear from you by the end of the year. So try to get those responses in by the end of December, please. Please, yes. Um, And then you'll have a good last book for your Goodreads list. So, you know. (laughs) And Britta, if they wanted to write in or get in touch with us, how would they do so? Okay, so if you've got something short, you just want to let us know you're reading, keeping up, you've got some thoughts about Lord of the Flies you didn't hear today, whatever, you can find us on the Twitters at HKHSPod or on the hashtag HKHSPod. Joe, where do they find you if they want to tell you that Piggy, Piggy actor Hugh Edwards is great, actually? <laughs> I can be reached at B stole my remote. And that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And uh, if you have something more long form, like you are looking ahead to book club, it's hkhspod at gmail.com. You know we mm-hmm. live for your emails. If you wanted to get us a Christmas present, an email would be awesome. That's true. Either that or a rating and a review on either oh, Spotify yeah. or Apple Podcasts. We literally <laughs> never ask for that. <laughs> I realize when I listen to other podcasts where they ask for it every week, I'm like, oh, yeah, that seems like something we should remember to ask for. Yeah, Yeah, it it would be lovely because uh, disappointingly enough, that is usually the only way that podcasts get noticed. So we're back to regular full length episodes next week with On the Come Up, Joe. I'm so excited to talk to you about On the Come Up. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like we've been waiting for this one for ages because we love an Angie Thomas and we finally got another adaptation. Yes, we love Angie Thomas and we love a good adaptation and I think there's all kinds of interesting stuff happening here that I can't wait to talk about so yeah that's our next Mm -hmm. full length you know you want to check it out do it (laughs) yeah so they know what they need to be reading and now watching so yeah until next time I guess I will see you on the page and I will see you on the screen We have these boys, they've been excavated. <laughs> All right, Joe, I bet we're going to get more bingo for our next book club in January because we are going to. Re- I never remember the name of the second author. Mm-hmm. Oh, hang on. I, I think, too. Nope, it's gone. <laughs> I can be reached at B Stole My Remote. You didn't say, and that's the letter B. And that's the letter B. <laughs> and I'm... Sorry. <laughs>